Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. In recent weeks, we've brought you some tactical theory and scouting themed episodes, bringing some internal guests onto the podcast, such as Bryant Marquez, Kyle McGuill and Lee Scott, to try and put our knowledge together to bring you some valuable insight into how to scout players, how to analyze games, our thoughts on the future of formations in analysis, etc, etc. This time around, we're going to sort of combine the last few weeks of podcast topics and roll them all into one, bringing an excellent guest on to give you their expertise and knowledge, but a guest with a wealth of experience in professional football and one that has no past connections with total football analysis. Imagine that. That man is Stevie Grieve. As many will know from Twitter or LinkedIn, a man who is constantly publishing some incredibly beneficial content surrounding coaching, recruitment, tactics, and how to create a game model. Hailing from Scotland and working with clubs such as Dundee United, St. Johnston, and most recently, Forest Green Rovers. Stevie has some extremely valuable insight and lessons for us all to learn. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and I hope you all enjoy the following episode. Before we begin, though, please make sure to rate the podcast. Five stars, hopefully. It's greatly appreciated so, so much. We've been growing exponentially at the moment, and we are incredibly grateful for your continued support. So let's try to keep that going as we bring you our very best audio content. So now, without further ado, let's go speak to Stevie. Stevie, welcome to the TFA podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Did you, I mean, I know of course you are Scottish and if people can't tell obviously by your accent you are you are Scottish. Did you enjoy the game? Did you know against Spain? I did actually. I thought, um, to be fair, right, it's Spain's B team. It's not Spain's full team. It was, it was a dramatically weaker mm-hmm. Spain, but I thought I thought Scotland controlled the game. To be honest, Spain had the ball, but they didn't have it in any areas where Scotland were really felt threatened. They had some crosses. They had Pedro Porro trying to put some balls in the box in the first half, but realistically, like that was Scotland are in control of the game mm-hmm. from the first five minutes, and as soon as they went one 0 up, it felt pretty comfortable. Scotland to go and win. Yeah, and that's what happened. International football is always quite a well. It's it's quite tedious, especially for me. Obviously, I'm clearly from the Republic of Ireland, and it's um, international breaks recently have become quite tedious, and I don't enjoy the football as much. So the last two weeks have been, uh, I'll call a break. But obviously, you you got a, a very nice win against Spain, so <laughs> congratulations. Um, we didn't really suffer the same fate against France. We'll jump into kind of the questions. I've a, a million questions I want to ask you, Stevie, and obviously time won't allow me to ask all of them so I'm just going to kind of fire away as many as the the big hitters as I can you were in a number of coaching roles and head coaching roles I believe you you were a head coach in India and Switzerland is that correct yeah yeah. was the you then you kind of made the jump to I think you were the was it the the head of coaching or director of coaching with Burlington and then you made the jump to become head of recruitment at a number of clubs you were you worked in recruitment and opposition uh, scouting, of course, at uh, Dundee and then at Aberdeen, your recruitment, Forest Green Rovers, then, of course, head of recruitment as well. Was that a a conscious decision you made? Or was there was it just that you were interested in the roles or was it always kind of you wanted to go into that side? Or was it, you know, well, do you prefer the coaching? Yeah, yeah, I prefer coaching. I'm a, I'm a far mm-hmm. better coach than I'm an analyst. And I'm sure there'll be people, there'll be people on this listening first going, hey, well, you're not very good at recruitment or talent ID, <laughs> so... Um, which would be nonsense because I'm good at it. Yeah. I think we've just been a little bit unlucky, in particular mm-hmm. with the results at, at Forest Green. But no, my, my background's in coaching. My, my passion is in coaching. A lot of the work that I do, um, certainly out of the public sphere, is is 
more towards building structures for coaching proce- processes and advising some quite top-level coaches about their session mm-hmm. design and how they integrate the, the, the game plan element of how, how it is you want to approach playing against specific opponents, which isn't just you know defensive shape or attacking shape session. So yeah, I went. I kind of went from doing a lot of coaching based roles to going head of analysis at Dundee United, which, to be honest, was probably the kind of experience I needed because like Robbie Nielsen, Gordon Forrest, Lee McCulloch, Neil Alexander, you know, they're four really really high level professional guys that mm. if you're going to learn the daily process within a, a Scottish football club they're probably the four best guys or among the four best guys you could you could hope to work with from that perspective and then obviously head of recruitment at St Johnston that that was more of a conversation with Robbie Nielsen to be honest like just before Covid where he was doing his, his uh, Masters in Sports Directorship at Manchester Uni and one of his modules was to work with some of the staff to create kind of career plans and it was him that brought it up because obviously I'd been doing a little bit of technical scouting with the sport director and, and head of recruitment with Dundee United like Tony Ashgar at the time he he said obviously you know the players in the league and you can identify talent like do you want to actually do this a little bit more mm. alongside your head of analysis and sorting out how to, how to win the games and then I think once we'd figured out that I was quite good at it, both from a subjective point of view, we're watching the players, and an objective point of view, which is using the data to, to filter them out. Robbie had identified that you could probably be a good sporting director. Um, so he kind of directed me down that path. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it was more by accident, to be honest. So, Did the experience in all them roles help you now? Because, of course, you've worked in a number of different roles in football. Has that kind of given you a better all-round view of, I suppose, people you're working with, and then especially if you become a head coach again, the role of the recruitment team and the role of the opposition analysis or the opposition analysts, et cetera. Does it kind of give you that that really good feel of you've you've been in everyone's shoes almost? Do you know what? Yeah. I, I think when I went to Forest Green, I spent a little bit of time with, with Alfie, who was the, the lead analyst. And I think like sometimes you're going and you're talking to him and saying, you could do with a drone because it would help film training better and give you mm-hmm. better footage to work with. We'll put sp- Spidio in the stadium so that you can manually code the games live, but then stream it to a different MacBook in the dressing room so that your work is automated. So putting in like uh, better processes for the an- analyst comes from directly having done that job. I think even from the perspective of like understanding what the coach is trying to do tactically on the field, comes a little bit from being a good analyst, but also being a good coach. So you can look at, well, what's he trying to do? Where where are we falling down a little bit? Okay, this is probably the specific player type that we're looking for, for that mm-hmm. role and how that fits within the tactical context of the team. So I think it's it's kind of it's a strength, but it's probably a weakness where I think um, if you just only ever do coaching roles, you become known as a specialist coach and it's probably easier to find your way working up the way as mm-hmm. opposed to having a really broad skill set where you can do everything to a pretty good level, um, but without being known as a specialist in any of them. So I think that probably lends itself to being a director of football mm-hmm. more long term. But I do think like if, if I was to rewind the clock and, and somebody said to me, right, at 36, you've been essentially a director of football, you've been head of analysis, you've been a head of recruitment, you know, you've done coaching for 20 years. Like there, there are times where you go, right, you can do everything. It's what do you want to do next and how do you really frame the skills that you've learned over that time and to maximise what it is that you want to do? Mm-hmm. 
You mentioned camera angles there, kind of, or sorry, the kind of the process for analysts to improve their their what they produce, of course. And you said about using Spideo and and different camera angles. And one thing as well, I think it's a question I want to ask you about that about the analysis process. I find, especially with things like obviously, Y Scout and Insta take their footage from usually broadcasters and things like that. So the, the especially if you're watching a game, like no disrespect to any Bournemouth fans, if you're watching a game at the Vitality Stadium, I feel like I'm on the touchline. And yeah. I, I, I really struggle to be able to, I mean, you can't see everything. You can only see certain certain parts of the pitch, of course, where the, where the, the camera is pointing at. Is that, do you think, do you think it's incredibly hard, is the question I want to ask you, to analyse a game properly using solely Y-Scout and Insta? Because, of course, it's only really what's available to most people out there. So I, I, th- I think like with that, they'll take the broadcast feed because it's it's easily accessible and you can download the game and put it up, or, you know, upload it. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll have deals with broadcasters. But say if you go to watch a League Two game or a Scottish Championship game, it will generally be what the analyst has filmed. So like when, when I was at Dundee United, um, quite often the games would be filmed by me. So then you would put the game on with the with the wide angle feed for the Scottish Championship. Not always, but a lot of the time it'd be done by me. Um, whereas if you go to watch League Two games in England, even some League One games, it's done by the analyst, and it's not because it doesn't come from a broadcast feed. So I think the higher level you go, the more likely it is that you're just going to get a decent broadcast feed. But like, mm-hmm. so see on on all my tactical teacher courses, like we've got a lot of games where there'll be interesting concepts, but I will take it, let's say it's Bournemouth as an example, because the, the camera angle is not the greatest. If they've got a tactical concept that I like, I might take it from an away game when they've played somebody mm-hmm. when it's been on show at a better camera angle, maybe like Tottenham away or something like that. Or let's say there's a, an angle for counter-pressing that you want to show. You might show it from Dortmund Stadium or Antwerp, for example, because they've got really, really good camera angles Mm. as opposed to some of the stadiums. So like a lot of the tactical teacher courses that I've made, um, a a lot of the clips that are used are basically because the camera angle in that specific stadium for that team worked uh, and was visible on that day because it is really important that if you're trying to analyse a game and get some insight from it, that you can see as much of the pitch as possible and as many of the players as possible but it isn't always ideal for some of the stadiums, which, mm-hmm. you know, depend on where the camera perspective comes from. Well, Marcelo Bielsa before said that when he analyzes games, he usually anal- analyzes the matches from two different camera angles. Now, obviously, that's not very plausible for just your average Joe, someone who just wants to start getting into analysis and putting it out on Twitter or a blog, etc. But what benefits would that give you watching it from, you said you record usually from a wide angle, but if you were to watch from a different angle, what would be the, what would be the benefit of that and the contrast? Like what, what does Bielsa use the two camera angles you, for? You're, you're probably got a, a touchline angle, which is looking at the pitch left to right. And then probably a behind the goal, really, really high angle where you can see mm-hmm. a kind of defense midfield attack. And you look at it from the, the opposite perspective, like the goalkeeper angle for example. So what's the goalkeeper angle or what's the coach's angle? And there are two different perspectives on the match because you might think that the defensive line looks good you know, from the sideline, but from the goalkeeper's perspective, it might be all over the place. You're looking at it maybe from a perspective of what's the distances laterally across players in the same unit as opposed to what's the different distances laterally between players in different units. 
Like, mm. If you're looking at it from the coach's perspective, you might think the defence and midfield are quite compact. But if you look at it from the goalkeeper's perspective, the left back and the left side centre back might be miles apart, and it might it might not be possible to judge that effectively or accurately from the touchline. But you could see it from the goalkeeper's perspective, and if you've got two camera angles, it maybe gives you the different perspective that you don't see, which is the more important one. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. I never kind of thought about that. It was only a few days ago I remember uh, listening to a. I can't remember when, where he said it, but Bielsa said it anyway. I thought it was interesting. I, I wasn't sure why, and thank you for explaining that, of course. But uh, leading into that, or just off that, sorry, at TFA, we try and bring the best analysis work we can, but I'm a big advocate for constantly trying to improve your analysis work by, I mean, like there's a number of different ways you can do it. What are the best ways of doing it, in your opinion? Because even for someone who, has worked in professional football, analysing games and opposition analysis and things like that. Surely you've got to constantly try and improve your own analysis work because it's, you know, well, I mean, just in general, everyone wants to self-improve, find different ways of doing it. Workflow, obviously, is really important, which we'll talk about in a minute. I think there's a, there's a bunch of different ways. Like The easy thing for me to say is, like, I, I made courses specifically for people to sign up to to improve their overall tactical knowledge. If you improve your tactical knowledge, you can probably see things a little bit quicker and earlier developing, and then you can give some insight into that. If you don't have basic tactical knowledge, you can't really analyse a game too much in detail. You might say, oh, they they attack down the sides, they put lots of crosses in, all that sort of stuff, which would be true and and accurate in most cases. Um, But you can only really go on what you see. The the higher level you go, the more intricate and more... um, detailed it's going to have to be like and it might just be like you might watch I don't know 10 Barcelona games because you're preparing for a Champions League and I have a friend who's who's the main guy at Man United that does it Paul Brand and you talk to him about it and it's like well you might watch Barcelona's 10 last 10 games last 15 games preparing for a Champions League game and it's what's the one thing that gives you the best chance of winning and it might be direct and play into one area through pressure on one player on a specific side so that you can win the ball back at a certain area so you can counter attack into a specific area mm-hmm. and it becomes really really in depth because there's no really any weaknesses at that level whereas if you're doing the Scottish Premier League every team's got weaknesses whether it's technical whether it's tactical whether it's physical you know it's just the, the the lower level down you go down the scale. If you're watching national league games, it might be that a guy miscontrols the ball when he's getting past it from the right back because he can't receive the ball accurately in the inside of his left foot under pressure. Mm-hmm. So depending on the level you work at, will be it, the game becomes more and more and more organised and more intricate and more detailed and more structured, more organised. Whereas the lower level you go down, you have to understand that, okay, the game is going to be largely chaos for, you know, 38 of the 47 minutes ball in playtime. Well, what do you do with that nine minutes where it is organised? How, how do you win the game in, in, in that time? Because that's the time where you can prepare to be organised. Mm-hmm. You can't prepare for chaos. Because you don't know what's going to happen. Pep Guardiola said that before. He said it's the one thing that stresses him out the most is kind of momentum, I suppose, which is basically chaos. And you see last season when Real Madrid scored two goals in the 90th-something minute against Man City to to take the game to extra time. You just can't really... You're right, you can't really solve chaos, really. When chaos ensues in a football pitch, it's kind of organisation, tactics, everything just kind of goes out the window. And that even when I was coaching, that stressed me out the most. Because there's really not much you can do to kind of 
to, to stop momentum, especially when it's with the other team. Um, I just want to ask you about analysing games or teams in general. Is it more important to analyse the the collective and the the actions that the collective make when such as like stepping up the press or, or how they drop off, etc.? Or is it more important to look at the individual actions within that structure or kind of both maybe? I think if you were to only look at individuals, individuals are making decisions based within the team concept, the, the team context. So, for example, if you play me at left midfield, I will invariably drift into a number 10 position, try and play in the half turn and look for one-twos and dribbles mm-hmm. because that's my player traits. But if you say to me, Stevie, you must play on the left-hand side, you're not allowed to wander inside, I'm going to drop deep as possible, I'm going to try and take it on a half turn and make four passes and progress the game that way through dribbles and, and longer passes. So what is my consistent traits from the left-hand side? I'm going to try and get on the half turn and I'm going to try and go forward as early as I can. Now, whether it's a pass or a dribble, doesn't really matter. It's, I'm going to try and get it and go forward. So how you shut me down won't really change too much. It'll be trying you know, stop him from turning, try and get on him early, try and use a bit of physicality against him. Again, if you're watching any sort of player, players have their own traits that they're going to stick to when they're under pressure. Um, and no matter where you play them, they're going to try and do those things because that's what that person feels comfortable doing. I think it, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. There's one way of how do you play against this team playing in this way and try and make them as uncomfortable doing what they want to do as possible and forcing them away from what they feel good doing, um, which then leads to confidence and momentum and uh, eventually trying to put you under pressure to try and win the game. So are you trying to set up against a team where you're trying to make them just the opposite or whatever it is that makes them feel comfortable? The second is, if they are going to do that, because they're miles better than you, well, how do you stop the better players from affecting the game in the way that their skill sets come forward. Mm. And then a lot of the time it will come down to, are you set up in a way which prevents these things from happening? And then are you set up in a way where when the key players get the ball, how do you stop them doing? I remember um, remember years ago speaking to Ian Cafro about uh, Valencia setting up against Barcelona. And it's like, well, if you let them go down the right, it's Danny Alves, Xavi and Messi. If you let them go down the left, it's Jordi Alba, uh, Iniesta and Neymar right okay pick your poison <laughs> or you're going to let it go down the left because you don't want Messi to yeah. get the ball under any circumstances but that's again if you're playing against um, Aberdeen in the Scottish Premiership you probably don't have that problem to worry about if you're playing against Shrewsbury in League 1 you don't have that issue to worry about your issue against Shrewsbury might be do you let the back three circulate it across the back to bang it long and put you under pressure and chase it and play second balls and then win throw-ins and put it in your box and then it becomes an endless cycle of just dealing with high balls or do you go and press them with two and shut off the outside centre-backs and force the middle centre-back to try and play a bit and then it puts them in an uncomfortable situation because they want to go direct from the outside centre-back so again that's a the centre-backs can play the passes they want they might not be the best players but they can do the passes that the coach wants within the style that they want so how do you prevent them being as effective as possible so again it's you always have to marry the balance between understanding what it is that makes a team successful but preventing the players from doing what it is that they enjoy doing the most and how how they affect the game positively mm-hmm. I want to talk about information and how much information is being fed to not only the head coach but also the players firstly 
on when the, when a manager is on or head coach, sorry, is on the touchline, how much information is being fed to them during the game? Because sometimes you you see different managers have different styles. Some managers will stand alone. Jurgen Klopp will just stand on his own in the technical area and won't really communicate with his staff until maybe half time. And a couple of other managers, whereas others are very. I mean, Guardiola talks with his coaches all the time and uh, a number of others. How much information is being fed from the analysts to the head coaches to help them make decisions? Or is it, it does it just depend on the manager? It, it depends on the manager, I would say. Um, like in my experience of working with a bunch of different ones so far, they're all different. Mm-hmm. Um, like Typically, at Dundee United, you would have somebody in the roof watching the game on the walkie-talkie, and then they would be radioing down to one of the first team coaches, which which would then end up at the manager if it was something that he felt like he was needing some guidance with or some assistance mm-hmm. with. But quite often, like the head coach is, is able to see early enough. Or you've a lot of the time you've got a MacBook and a high angle camera. And the high angle camera streaming onto the MacBook and then you can re- like review things properly and from that perspective. So if the coach really wants to go and see something, it's the video footage is there. So it, it, it can depend on the staff, to be honest. Like some some head coaches now have got an analyst on their staff who is somebody with a coaching background but who's a good analyst who then they'll ask the questions and get the information from the roof. But at the same time, a lot of stadiums have got a high angle camera. They're streaming the game in the MacBook. If the manager wants to go and see something on the iPad, he can. Um, so all, all managers are looking for information. The only, I, I would say, I wouldn't say the only time that it's really, really beneficial, really effective is at half time. But that's when you've got a natural break in play where you can review things and make tactical changes based on what information's been given to you. I do think that there's probably a lot of value to a, a head coach having a lot of information in the first 15 minutes about what was the game plan going into into the game? What did they think that the opposition are trying to do? Because it's not just we are trying to set up to beat them and they don't change. It's they're changing against us. We're changing against them. There's always natural evolution because mm-hmm. you've got your own game model, which is how we want to play on a, a consistent basis. But you've also got the match strategy, which is how you've set up against the specific opponent to try and win. And it might be that you've you've spent all week trying to trap the left back and then they've played a different left back. Or it might be that you've said, okay, we think that we're going to play through the thirds and then they've brought in a six foot five target man because they know the pitch is going to be bad and then they bang it long. It's, okay, we didn't mm-hmm. really prepare for that, but okay, we now need to know how to solve the problem. And then that's probably where a little bit of assistance from analysis and first team coaching staff and uh, different information sources are going to give a little bit of benefit to the squad. I say this all the time. I've said this a million times on the podcast. The unknown in football stresses me out. The 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 amount of variables there are in the game. Like you said, you can set up all week, you analyze ten games of the opposition, or whatever, and then they play a different player up front than you would have expected and they play a different way. I think the 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 variation, the different variables are in football really stresses me out, especially when I analyze games. Um speaking of that. I want to ask you about workflow, which is one of the most important tools, I suppose, for any anyone working in analysis, really, or in, in coaching or in the professional side of the game. You said there that Manchester United maybe analysed 10, 15 games of Barcelona. In in maybe a league or, or a club where they wouldn't have as many analysts and they have a game every three days, per, per se in the championship of 46 matches of a game, Game Saturday, game Wednesday, game Saturday again. How important is it to optimize your own workflow? And is there is there one 
primary way, the best way someone can can optimize their workflow, or is it just solely uh, uh, done on an individual basis where something will work better for someone else? For you, yeah. for you, what was your kind of ideal way that you helped manage that workflow? Because there's so, so many games and things to get through. Yeah, so like at Dundee United, for example, like I would send Robbie and the staff, uh, the next opponent analysis, all the videos and all the data, the players, the player clips, all that sort of stuff, um, nine days before the next game. So we would go into a Saturday game and I would already have prepared everything and sent it on the Friday night for the next one. Because as soon as that game is finished, the preparation starts for the next one. Mm. So it might be that, let's say, Robbie finishes the game, does the press, talks to the players, does a debrief for the staff. The preparation for the next game is on the Saturday. That's you know eight days away, seven days away. He wants to have the document in his hand, sat on the bus on the way home after the game, if it's an away game, for example. So I would always have it prepared about nine days in advance. And then that way, that would allow me, if I do that on a Friday, I can get Saturday's night's post-match done. The player clip's done on a Saturday after the game, everything uploaded to Huddle, and then I can start preparing the next bunch of analysis uh, information for the game after that for the Friday. So I'm, I'm, you're working probably a five-day turnaround. You're doing like Monday to Friday to watch probably four games, as well as film training, analyze training, do all the data reports, do all the other uh, things that the players are asking for, the staff ask for, the, in terms of like ad hoc things that come up during the week. Um, stuff that the sporting director would ask for so when you put all these sort of things together you've probably got the Monday to Friday to put all your work together, Saturday is you're doing um, like the pre-match report not a report but like a presentation for the players and the staff that the manager will run through and then you've got the stuff that you do before the game when the team line comes up you need to understand who's going to play where, what movements, tendencies are going to have, who who's going to go up for corners, who the markers are going to be, if it's going to be four markers, five markers, six markers, that sort of stuff, what subs might they make, um, what stuff are you going to analyse to clip to then send to the, the dressing room, you know, in live and play, and then what stuff does the manager want to see post-match? And to be fair, a lot of the players will come in post-match and they want to see stuff that... Um, Mark Connolly was really good. He'd say on that, like the sixty-third minute, he'd look up at the the scoreboard and be like, "I'm going to ask for that," and he'd come in the sixty-third minute and he'd be like, and he'd know exactly what it was. Have a timestamp in his mind, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> like I, I remember, I remember Shankland coming in after a game, and he was uh, there was a thing that happened. It was like seventy-fourth minute. This ball got played from him to him, and I made this run at this time. And it's not something that you would normally pick up on as an analyst, but he's like, "I made a run, pulled him out, and then drifted away, and the ball never came." And you're like. He remembers that because he's like, like, what time is it? And he'll look up at the up at the scoreboard. But like a lot of footballers have got this unbelievable recall of what's just happened in a game and when and how it felt and stuff like that. And a lot of the time they're bang on. Like it's yeah. it's incredible seeing it. So um yeah, I think there's you're you're probably doing like a nine day, a five day build up to giving your report probably nine days before the next game because you need time. Whereas it might be that you know, some clubs you've got data scientists who can pull all the information, which is what we had at Forest Green. You had data scientists who could pull the information, put it together in like a data viz package and say, look, this is the breakdown of everything that has happened in the game and things that we can look to exploit. And it might be that somebody's really strong in the first 15 minutes and we know we need to be compact and solid. It might be that in our case, we had, uh, I think we'd lost like 18 goals 
in the last 15 minutes of game. So if you're a team with a data scientist and that gets picked up, then you know that you need to start putting pressure on us because we've fade in the last 20 minutes and mm-hmm. naturally leads to losing games and goals. So um, there's, there's things like that where data scientists can help you figure out where to look. And then even things like, like what we started laterally trying to experiment a bit with Dundee United was like pitch control models because James Mont was, was quite a good analyst and he could put together the data. So what we would do is like we'd run like a pitch control model and there might be like a five minute phase where Team X might be struggling a little bit in a certain area of the pitch but the, the, the visualisation and the colours of it bring it to life and then you go right okay what happened in that period of time and then you go and watch it on the video. So you're mm-hmm. using the data to try and tie in with the tactical stuff to figure out exactly why certain things happen rather than just say, oh, they lost a bit of control here. Why was that? It was because a guy kept, wasn't tracking back or he was putting a bit more pressure on the, the centre-back and build-up instead of dropping off. So mm-hmm. a lot of the time you're trying to really translate what the information sources are telling you to try and provide insight. What do you believe is the the future of analysis work in terms of, as an opposition analyst, maybe in 20 years, I would expect with the advancements of technology it will be easier but well I, I hope so um but what, what kind of because i mean even the, the stuff you were saying there i mean it, it sounds like you and from other analysts i know that work in the game very little time off because it's no, so, none. Yeah, it's, no it's, it's crazy no in football off. like lee scott who you know of course said this to me before like in football there's no time off and even like head coaches said all the time when they're out for dinner with their family they're constantly thinking of it constantly thinking of the, of the team and, and how they can improve things but how can you see football analysis improving will it go fully towards data where you type a few things in your laptop and bang everything will be pulled up you'll have clips for the manager already compiled as a report etc or will it still be very manual manually heavy does that make sense it's like if, if you look at it from a perspective of it's still 11 v 11 and it's still effectively random on the day mm-hmm. it's a lot about the art of coaching so a, lot, a lot's about the art of man management a lot's about the art of making the right in-game decisions um i think that you're going to have more of a an interference from like ai you're going to have more of an interference of data to try and provide the best insight I might get to the point where there's five players on the pitch and you say, right, I don't care if player A and player B get the ball because we're not under any threat if they have it. But player C, we're going to double up on him no matter what. And it becomes a little bit like basketball in that sense where, like, if you're playing against, uh, I don't know, like, Toronto Raptors, maybe you double up on, on Siakam and say, right, we're, we're not going to let this guy score. But the problem you've got is if he kicks it out to Vliet or Anunobi, they hit a three. Mm-hmm. That gives you an issue, but they're not even like good shooters. They're not even like elite shooters. If you do that against the top teams, then you're just going to get destroyed anyway. And so I think there there'll be an element of that within football that you're looking at like efficiency, volume, stats, that sort of stuff. And it's do we really care if this player puts a cross in, or do we really care if this player makes a through ball or tries to dribble because his his efficiency is so low that we think that there's an area of exploitation from that. So I think that you'll probably get to that stage where. Um, individualised analytics come in that lead to decision making within the game plan but at the end of the day it's it's very much still a sport based on humans and um, I think we're, we're always going to have that element of the art of coaching being the most important aspect of the game because how do you break down a low block 
there's different ways of doing it. It's not just going to be, oh, if we pass the ball in this area and we make these runs, this is going to work. It's, it's how do you implement your game model? It's how do you implement your, your match strategy? It's what subs do you make in the game? Is you know, If you've got 20 minutes to go, what, what do you think you need? Well, that guy's on a booking. Let's take off the winger who runs in behind constantly and put on a winger that's going to dribble at him constantly. Now that makes the, the right back have a high level of anxiety. Does that force a mistake? And then does it force the, the right side of centre back to scramble and put some pressure on the ball? And then does that open up somebody in the middle of the box? So it's, you know, just from the perspective of a right back getting booked might open up the opportunity to make cutbacks in the box. And again, that's just going to come down to the, the art of coaching and having people able to read what's going on in a game and, and set a team up for different eventualities rather than data kind of overtaking it because I think there's too many players for the game to be overtaken by data. Mm-hmm. It's not like baseball where it's a pitcher, a catcher and a a batter and some fielders whereas you can kind of control it as much as you want. Yeah. You you brought up game models there and it's something I want to discuss now in, in a second, but I'd like to ask you first to kind of weigh in on your thoughts on kind of formations at the minute. We've done a podcast in the last few weeks talking about the importance of formations in the modern game or the lack of importance of formations, I should say. It's not that we argued that, or I argued anyway, that formations weren't important. I think sometimes people put way too much weight on what Guardiola once called telephone numbers in terms of you see... And again, I'm not calling people's names out at all, but you see things on Twitter and you've Twitter threads where someone makes an analysis of a team and they're talking about they play this shape and then a change to this shape and this shape. And I think, is it not more important what happened within the context of that? So I use an example of, I believe it was Jamie Carragher discussing, sorry, I said I wouldn't name names, but I did. Uh, <laughs> it was Jamie Carragher talking about Spores' pressing shape against Man City a couple of months ago, I remember. Spores, I think, won the game. They were playing their usual 5-2-3 or whatever you want to call it, but what happened was Eric Dyer, the central centre-back, would leave the back line and step forward to mark someone during the press. I can't remember what player it was from City. And then he argued, he was like, okay, the, the shape changes to a 4-1-4-1 or whatever. And I just think or a four, uh, a four three three or whatever he said, and I just think is that is that important to analyze that to put a name on it rather than just saying in the press Dyer would step forward and mark this player. What are your thoughts on that? Are formations, especially in possession? Rene Marit said this before: that formations in possession are worthless, basically in the day and age. It's usually out of possession where they're more yeah. useful for you. And when you're compiling reports and you're giving reports of managers or etc., or if someone's coming to you to report, if you're the head coach. What relevancy do formations have anymore to help you in analysis or to prepare for a game? I, th- I think analysis provides like an easy reference point for somebody to to say, if I say, Adam, that team's set up in a 4-1-4-1 defensively, you're like, right, okay, I've got a very clear picture of that. Mm-hmm. If we say, right, they're going to jump from 4-1-4-1 to 4-4-2, okay, so who does that? Is it the winger or the midfielder? Because the midfielder jumps up in line with the forward. Okay, what does a holding midfielder do? Holding midfielder also jumps, right? Okay, so they're going to start 5-4-1, when they're in a low block, when they're in a medium block, it's 4-1-4-1, and when they're in a high block, it's 4-4-2, and the midfielder jumps and the defensive midfielder drops and becomes centre-back. Yeah. All right, cool. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 formation or the number just gives like an easy visual representation to it. Now, that's not to say that it's rigid or completely structured, because, but it's, it is very easy for us to say a team defends in this shape because it gives you an immediate picture of it. I, I think what, Ren, what Rene is saying is like in possession... 
the system and the shape is probably predicated more on the, the five reference points being the, the ball, the space, the teammate, the opponent and the goal rather than, you know, we want to set up in this shape. So, like, if a team plays, I don't know, like, a, a really narrow back four, a really narrow midfield four, but you play five strikers, you overloaded them on the defensive line. You're probably going two, three, five in that case. So you're overloading the three central midfielders. Okay, well, what's the opposition team's wide midfielders doing in a four-four-two? Nothing, mm-hmm. right? Well, maybe they drop and play an outside the defence, and it looks like six-three-one. But again, right? Well, it's just a number, really. But it's an easy representation of of what the shape is defensively. I think in possession, you might you might say, well. We're playing against a specific opponent who have got a, a defensive right side central midfielder who has no defensive awareness at all, and you might decide that you want to expose that guy, and you might play with two players off his shoulder on each side, which means he doesn't really know does he drop, does he mark, does he press, does he screen, you know what does he do? How do we recycle the ball into an area where we can create the positional superiority that we're looking for against the weakest guy in the defensive line? So if you're doing it against Jorginho, it's probably quite easy because he's more of a positional defender rather than a man marker, but he doesn't track runners, he just holds holds shape. Whereas if you're trying to do it against maybe Angolo Kante, he's going to track his runner or he's going to mm. go over and press the first ball and impress the second one because physically he's capable of doing it, but he also reads the game to the level where that's, where that's going to happen. So I think... Um, in possession, it's more about how do you create, you know, solutions to problems, and who is it you're trying to attack within each line of pressure. So, if you've got two forwards and one of them works hard really and presses all the time, or one of them's quite lazy, well, you can use the one that works hard against them by playing two or three little triangles and then open them up and exposing the other one who's now not going to put pressure on the ball and then does that force somebody to jump out in the midfield line to put pressure on the ball which then creates a space to attack the defensive line So, or it might be that you you understand that you're playing against a team playing a 5-3-2 for example defensively and you know that the, the way to attack a 5-3-2 might be lots of switches of play from mm-hmm. channel to channel where you can open up the midfield three open up the midfield two or even on second balls where it goes long and like we had this problem a few times at Forest Green this year where we're playing in a back five or five three two and if we don't win the first ball in midfield, where do they pass it? First passes out to the full back because there's absolutely nobody able to get out there and defend because our wing backs against their winger. There's nothing you can do if you don't pick up the second ball because the first pass goes to the two three men on the outside of the on the outside of the pitch. So um I don't I, I wouldn't say like the formation is the thing that everybody talks about, but it does provide the easiest visual representation for somebody to get a clear picture of what's going on in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. As I said, it's just an interesting debate because for me, sometimes I see way too many people putting too much emphasis on that. I think especially when you work just from from my own, and, and again, I haven't had nearly as good experience as coaching as you had at that level, but from coaching, you're right, it's a reference point for players, but it's not something I focus too heavy on because even even especially in possession, like if you say, okay, they're gonna play a three two five or whatever, and then one of the wingers drop in or so I mean it's just as a reference point, it doesn't show you that kind of unknown, I suppose, in the pitch, because players do move all about and then okay, the left back will tuck in or he'll go wide and putting the shape on that seems tedious to me, especially in possession. Um so thank you for Weighing in on that was interesting. Let's talk about game models then. Firstly, I want to ask you about tactical teacher. What kind of, I mean, what kind of, what, t- tell people for those that don't know about it, what kind of stuff you do on, 
on there essentially. So when I was doing my B license, um, a lot of coaches couldn't see the picture tactically that quickly. And a couple of the boys in the course kind of remarked that I could see almost immediately. Mm-hmm. I'd also been doing TV you know, for three years by this point and watching millions of games, analysing them, putting them together, making educational points and then, and then putting it online and you know, doing a TV show from it. So it came from that. And then so I started making kind of these online PowerPoints and, and keynote presentations, which were then... There were tasks and built to it. So it might be right, watch this game, watch this clip, this is what you should be looking for. Can you spot it? And I wouldn't annotate them, I wouldn't put any coach paint or drawings or any of that sort of stuff on it because I want the coach to see it themselves based on what they've read and learned and, and considered. So on all the, the older courses and the newer courses, it's very much like task driven. Here's a concept. This is a picture of it. This is a tactical theory behind it. This is it happening in a game. This is a video of it. This is a breakdown of it. And then here is another game where it may also have happened. Can you watch it, see it, analyze it, and then and then you know showcase it? So a lot of those, there's probably eight or nine tasks in, in each you know, 150 slide course because what I didn't want it to be was you have to turn up every Thursday at six o'clock. That's not how people live their life. So we made them more uh, online based where you can go through, do the tasks as you please, learn as you please, and then figure out how do you implement um, the things that you've learned and analyzed and then how do you turn it into a training session, which is the next next part of a lot of the, the aspects within the courses. So yeah, the tactile teachers started off as a, a way to help guide coaches towards being stronger analysts, which would then impart uh, better coaching information into their training sessions, which is is kind of evolved from that into um, have a lot of like Premier League level staff that use it like analysts, uh, sports scientists try to understand more about the tactical side of the game. We've got a lot of different like players that are now doing B license and A licenses that mm. take the courses. So you know, it's, I think it's in 120 odd countries just now. That's amazing. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the you said there about. Training sessions, coaching sessions, sorry. In terms of a game model, why is having your your sessions based around your game model so, so important rather than just having a game model and doing a presentation to your players and saying, this is our game model, this is how we play. Why is, is, is creating that in training extremely important for a team to be successful? So if some if somebody says to you, what does an Adam Scully team look like? What what would they say? What would a casual outside observer say about your team? Beautiful. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult one because I haven't put. It's actually something I thought of a lot. I haven't put too much thought about. Right, but if somebody, somebody like comes use, to watch, you know? if somebody comes to watch three games of your team, what do they say? Um, tough one. I mean. I love, I love quick football verticality. Not but what would they say? Ball. What would they say? Not what, what you would say. What would they say? What would they say? Right. So if somebody if somebody comes to watch one of my teams, they'll always say high tempo, mm. very dominant in possession, lots of high pressure, quick. Right. And mm-hmm. you could watch. You could speak to people I've worked with, coached against, 
coached alongside. People have just come and watched my team. And it's a consistent thing across multiple teams. It's always the same. Like we have the ball, we dominate the ball, we apply quick high pressure on teams when we don't have it, um, and quite flexible defensively. So whether it's a back three where a holding midfielder in front, so when we lose the ball, the holding midfielder drops into a back four, like if we play a three-diamond three, or if it's a 4-1-4-1, four, one, four, one, for example, and we go to high press and the ball goes wide, then the holding midfielder drops into the defensive line and makes a back five. There's always little intricacies within the, the, the system, but the same things are always there. We have the ball. We will try and overload centrally. We'll try and build up from the back. We'll always try and provoke pressure and play through. So there's, it doesn't matter what group of players I've got, the, the same consistencies are there. So what you want to find out is what do other people say about your team? Because that's mm-hmm. how clear your ideas are. Now, if you were to say, what does a Jurgen Klopp team look like? You could tell us. What does a Guardiola team look like? That could tell us. Well, coaches at every single level should be able to do that. It shouldn't be completely random. It shouldn't be that coaches are... Uh, unable to articulate or for other people to tell you what does your team look like. If you if, if your team style is really well coached and really well drilled, then other people should be able to tell you what does your team look like. So mm. when we have a game model, the game model is firstly to put it all down as to what do you really believe in? What is it that you would hang your hat on and say, I want an Adam Scully team to, to play like this? Then it's breaking it down into every single constituent part how do you play in possession? Okay, well, how do you build up from the back? How do you play through the defence? How do you play through the full-backs? How do you play through midfield? How do you break pressure? How do you finish attacks? How do you uh, enter the penalty box? Where do your crosses come from? All those sorts of things. Okay, once we've lost it, do you want to counter-press? No, I want to sprint back into shape. Okay, fine. That's that's fine. Like You, you do what you, you want to do, whether you want to counter-press or not. But again, it's about showcasing that. Do you have the example uh, videos that other teams are doing if you don't have your own do you have images and screenshots and diagrams to showcase to your players exactly what it should look like and, and also to your staff so that when you're all working together it's very clear about what you want to do and then what you do is you take what you want the, the game to look like whether it's from a, a, a tactical diagram or whether it's from an in-play scenario or whether it's from a video that you want to showcase to the players how do you turn that into several training sessions to help embed and build on those principles so that they become automatic in the mm. way that players think and act. So if you mm. say to somebody, what's your name? They go bang, they tell you immediately. It's an automatic response. You want the same sort of thing to happen on a football pitch because that comes from the training that they've done. And what you find is like a lot of teams that are uh, patterns of play based take longer to make decisions because everything's wrote and scripted whereas if it's principle based and it's based on fluidity and movement and rotations that's a lot harder to implement but at the same time it's quicker it breaks teams down but the problem you've got is how it's not easy to coach and it's not easy to um, design sessions where that happens organically so if I take my experience of working in Switzerland I couldn't really coach in French at the start so how do I make training sessions where my ideas come forward without me being able to necessarily tell the players exactly what I want. So your session mm-hmm. design has to be perfect. Um, and it's the same for anybody who works in a second or third language. So when when you're asking people, but what does your team look like? That's, that's you asking them, do I have a game model? And a lot of coaches, uh, they, they wouldn't be able to get the same sort of response from different different you know opposition coaches or people that work within the same club as them because their style of play is inconsistent at best so what you want to do is take all the inconsistency and things that make you unsure about how it is that you want to play 
collate all your ideas, put it into this really strong um, document, which then showcases exactly how it is that you want to play. And then that will frame how you think about the game, how you analyse the game, how you prepare for matches, how you prepare your pre-season, how do you do your periodization, all that sort of stuff, because it gives you a thinking, working football model that you wouldn't otherwise have. Mm. The question you asked was genuinely really, really good. And, and I don't just say that because you're here. For those listening, if if you are a coach or, or, or manager, etc., Ask yourself that question. Genuinely, that kind of stumped me a little bit. And I was, I, I chat a lot, but I was genuinely a bit uh, speechless. It's genuinely an amazing question for those listening. Ask yourself that question and see if you do have a game model, what other people would say about your team. I just have maybe one or two more questions, Steve, I want to ask him where we've just come up to time. Flexibility in a game model. Is it important to be flexible or so say you want to play a certain way you want to build to the towards that's how you want to play you want to play quick but maybe you go into a team where you don't have the players to do so they have a guy who's not great at dropping deep they don't have midfielders who are great at passing the ball but they have a quick center forward who loves running in behind you have a center half who loves playing long or who has a great long pass is it is it important to be flexible then with your game model and say, okay, we I want to build the towards, but I can't do it at this team because we don't really have the players. So let's go well, this way. As to me, that's like the biggest cop out. It's the biggest cop out is to say I don't have these players. You look at like you look at how Burnley have played for ten years and then company turns up and it's largely the same team and they play the complete opposite way. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, maybe at youth level it's harder, but at the same time, you're coaching against people who are maybe not the best coaches and you're coaching against players who are maybe the most intelligent players. So it's all relative to the level of competition you face. So for me, it is a total cop-out. Like I took a team in, in Ontario who were rated 17th in Ontario in, uh, in OPDL. Um, it was a girls team. They were struggling, to be honest, in almost every game. And within 18 months, they were top two in Canada and playing some of the most professional looking football you'll ever see mm-hmm. so I think it's, to me it's a cop out for people to say I don't have the players to do it are you a good enough coach to get them to understand how to do whatever it is that you need them to do while being flexible like for example we had a we had a right back who on the touchline she had like a 33% pass completion rate okay well don't ask her to play in the touchline then ask her to play 15 yards inside and build up as part of a three okay well if she plays narrow then then the right winger Lindsay she plays on the touchline as high as possible well then we're maybe lacking a little bit of connectivity between the right side centre back now or the right back and the right winger okay well my right side centre midfielder she can go whatever she wants because she's technically capable of doing that so it's about balancing what you have and what they're capable of doing and setting them up for success and and understanding what it is that they can and can't do because there's no point as a coach and and I, I, I probably go overboard about this but a lot of coaches will say to me oh that player can't do this or can't do that All right, well you know, I'm I'm five foot five. Don't put me in the middle of the box and ask me to score headers. But at the same time, expect that if you put a hundred crosses in the box, I'm still not going to score. Mm-hmm. So, work with what you have. Find the best way to implement your game model and your ideas with the players that you have, and set them up in a way where it allows them to play the way that you want them to do, while maximizing the things that they can do to help your team be a success. There's no point in writing people off and saying they can't do X, Y, and Z, so I'm just going to boot it long. Well, you're probably not going to be successful doing that anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, you have you have your way of playing. 
you understand what the players can and can't do, and then play that way. I remember that that same girls team we can't in Burlington actually like we had a really narrow inverted right back who would play almost like part of a back three, and then my left back was a central midfielder, and she would play in the middle of the pitch quite a lot, and it would be like we'd play almost three two four one. My left winger was was more of a presser. The right winger would would be an off the ball runner in behind. We couldn't figure out a problem, uh, you know, a solution for the striker position, which meant that every one of them that went played up front ended up just being a false nine. So we'd end up playing like this three box, two, or it was just this weird weird shape. But it allowed us to con- consistently overload the middle of the park five v three with two wingers that would play really wide and extreme, and then the back three were. You know, the right back was tucked in, the left back was in midfield with a holding midfielder who would hold position and then two kind of central midfielders, Mary and Emma, who would just go and do what they wanted because mm-hmm. they were the best players. So you're always trying to find a solution to the problems that you're trying to face rather than just say, oh, well, they can't do this. Well, then what? You don't have to now to go and buy a new player. Like, work mm-hmm. with the players you've got. Well, speaking of that, just the last question I want to ask you, you said working with the players you've got. Obviously, the objective would be in the future to get better players and then you can kind of maybe move higher up the league or or, or be a better team overall. How important then is, because actually I, I have a, I wrote down a quote from you used on an old podcast where you, and I loved it, you said, you said, let me just check it here, you said, uh, yeah, buying a load of good players and hoping they gel in a team is the equivalent to ransacking, or, or students ransacking Tesco. Uh, that was genuinely a quote I absolutely loved. You use it on an all, I can't remember the podcast. Was it the Fitbon podcast? I can't remember. I think you were with Dundee United at the time. Genuinely, it's a, an amazing quote. Sorry. I know I kind of stumped you there, but <laughs> talk to me about why the recruitment process is so important rather than just, I mean, so many teams do it. You know, you see Manchester United did it for 10 years. They go out and just kind of buy players. They don't really gel as a team rather than having a proper recruitment process. As someone who's worked on that side of the game, then, Stevie, what is... Talk talk to me why it's important, and also, is it more important than having an amazing game model or a set game model? Because, in theory, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I agree with this, but just in theory, you could, you could win a league by not really having a game model, but with great players, essentially. Yeah, I think like if you've got all the best players and they're set up in a way where all the pieces fit together, you're probably going to have a chance because by default, you have good players and they'll make good decisions, etc. But for most teams who are not called Real Madrid... Um, <laughs> they're, they're the team I thought of. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's true. Like, do, yeah. do you really need to tell Tony Gross what to do? Mm-hmm. No. Do you need to tell Luka Modric what to do? No. Can you put Casemiro in between the two of them and just say, can you just tackle folk and pass it to the good players? Yes. Like, he's an unbelievable player himself, mm. but those two are better. Yeah. So, do you really need to tell Vinicius Jr. going to stand in the touchline and ruin your guy 1v1 and get in the back post and score? You don't really need to tell the top players what to do because they already know what to do. Mm-hmm. That's why a large part of why they're the best players. Technically, they're the best, but also physically, they're they're among the best and they all understand how to use their strengths better than anybody else. So when you're putting together, and, and we probably suffered with this at, at Forest Green a little bit, like all the pieces fit together, all the players we signed. We had a, a tall centre-back who was really quick and physical and good in the air, but we needed somebody who was more composed and calm uh, in possession and could break lines. We needed a left back who could play as part of a four, but is also super aggressive, you know, one v one defensive, but is good on the overlap going forward. 
Um, we needed uh, a striker who would stand in the middle of the box. He's not scored yet. But sometimes that comes down to amount of service or volume of service mm-hmm. rather than anything else. But again, it's well, he works well with, with Garrick, who plays off the left, and O'Keefe, who plays off the right. So Garrick scored like five goals because Bakayoko maybe ties up two attackers and Robson ties up the right back by going in the overlook constantly. So the balance fits. The, the midfielders all work together. You know, you've got Charlie McCann and Charlie Savage who can both play next to Dylan and Miles can go more closer to the to the striker and help out back and get in the box. So if you have a game model and you have an understanding of what it is you want your team to try and be, you can then recruit players who are firstly an upgrade and secondly are a fit. If they're not an upgrade and they're not a fit, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Because if they're not a fit, what are you going to do? Change your whole team to to fit one guy. I remember when Liverpool sold Coutinho and you're like, yeah, it's a great sale because he doesn't really fit as a left winger and he doesn't really fit as a 10 within how their midfield wants to play. So as great as he is, you have to sell him because he's not really a fit for the system. And you get maybe a more functional, less talented player, but who's a better fit for the team and the team goes on and wins the league, wins the Champions League, all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes like without a game model, without a real clear identity of how you're going to play, how do you know what players are going to come in and fit and do the jobs that you're, 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 you require of them? Yeah, yeah. Stevie, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Um, quite often on Twitter just now because I'm working from home and doing more online stuff. So, yeah, it's just at Stevie Grieve on Twitter. And if they if they want to visit my Shopify or sign up to some of the old courses, it's, it's onsidesoccerconsultant.com. But, um, yeah, quite happy for, for people to fire questions in the DMs. So I kind of, I, I like answering questions and helping people when I'm mm-hmm. in between jobs. So, like, when I'm, when I'm at work and I'm working my club, I tend to not be or answer people so apologies for that if you've sent me messages in the last five six months I've just ignored that <laughs> you also put a, a, a there was a thread yesterday I think last night was it you put out on Twitter it was really good about um, I remember the name but it was something kind of maximising was it wit yes yeah, like maximising the, the positional balance between players yeah. based on who you've got in the front line mm-hmm. it was a really good thread so if you're listen to this podcast and you've got in this far, which you should have, well, why would you have turned off? Uh, yeah, so if you get in this far, make sure to check Stevie out on Twitter and read that thread as well. It's excellent. To all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed as well. And please make sure to tune in on Tuesday for another episode of the TFA Scouted podcast for you all to hopefully enjoy. Also, make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers, friends and family, as it really helps us to grow. Thank you all for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>